You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. We are, we are starting a new series, as Adam says, on nations. It's called The Nations. Any topic that the Bible talks about a lot, that the writers of the Bible or the heroes in the Bible talk about a lot, is a topic that this church should talk about a lot. Anything that is in the vocabulary of Scripture should be our vocabulary. That's the way we want to live our lives. If the Bible emphasizes something, it should be something we are willing to regularly emphasize. And so the topic of the nations is something that we should be devoting time to. And that's what we're going to do the next six weeks. We have got six different types of talk to do with the nations. Today is going to be the Old Testament. I um, like to put a good title to a sermon, and so I've called it The Nation's Origins. Because I think, you know, it sounds a bit like a film... And in a, in a second, I'll explain why, but I've then got an extra subtitle. I think the key ingredients of a sequel are like the nations and then a colon, origins, and then a subtitle, rival and revival. So it'll all make sense. But that's today. Today, we're looking at the origin of nations and languages in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look at the New Testament. What does the Bible say about Jesus' impact in the nations? And then on to the last day that we were singing about earlier on, where every knee will bow and people from every nation will come to Jesus. I'm not allowed to cover the New Testament today, but, you know, I'll I'll probably have to mention Jesus because, you know, he's the story of the whole Bible. So then we're going to have a talk about Redeemer. How does Redeemer interact or how should we interact with this topic of the nations? We're then going to have three guest speakers, which I am really excited about. One guy is a guy called Christopher Singh. He's involved with and has a heart for the nations. He's going to come and tell some stories and get us stirred. Then there's a guy called NK. He's from South Africa. He's going to be speaking to us about church planting in South Africa. And then we've also got a guy called Sheshi, who's from East Africa in Tanzania, coming to share stories and his heart for the nations. Let me say before we plow into our stuff today, I'm excited. I think God is going to say a lot to us as a church during this series. I think God's going to speak to us through others. I think he is going to call us individually to great things and as a church to take this seriously. In Isaiah 40, if you're looking at what the Old Testament says about the nations, here's a verse straight away. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on scales to God. I think we're going to get a bigger view of God when we see how much bigger he is than the power of a single nation. I think we're also not going to do a very good job of preaching this unless we give a good and big, glorious view of the gospel of Jesus Christ as applied to the nations. So that's what we intend to do. So my job today is just to get the juices flowing. Week one, the origins, to try and get us stimulated on it. We're going to look at two chapters, two narratives about the nations and languages and their origins. Firstly, we're going to look at how nations and languages came to be at the Tower of Babel. And then we're going to move on to see how God chose a man called Abram and called him the father of nations. And how Abram is, to each of us today, an example of the way that we should be willing to go. So rival and revival, let me explain that. The first story, Babel, is really about people, mankind, deciding to set up rivalry with God, to be our own God, to be independent. And then revival, what we'll come to in a bit, is how God revives the topic of spreading around the world. Rival and revival. Before we get into Babel, let me just explain one thing. The word nation isn't quite the same as our English word country. So we're quite rubbish in the English language, aren't we? Of oversimplifying a great biblical word. And so the word country in English just kind of means borders, doesn't it? Or like a stable government, which is a bit boring. But what the Bible talks about in nations is it's a body of people. It's like a people group. 
It is a nationality or a people. And so when I say nation, I don't just mean a border and a stable government, because, you know, God's much more interesting than that. Okay, so straight into rival, the story of Babel. We're going to be in Genesis 11. What we're going to do today is slightly different. I'm not going to read the passage out now. We are going to look at the two stories, and then we're going to read the passage at the end to summarize. Partly, it allows us then to read it with uh, some insight as to what the passage is saying, but also we'll put it up on the screen so you can check I'm not just lying and telling you a random story in the Bible. This is a real thing. So, Genesis chapter 11. Let's go through the first few chapters of Genesis as a background. We've got Adam in the Garden of Eden, and God calls him to populate the earth. Straight away in Genesis, we've got this narrative of populating the earth. We as mankind and Adam and Eve are told to go and have dominion and bring growth and generous portion of mankind over the earth. It says that Adam was blessed by God and he was told to go and spread that blessing around the world. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. That's what God's command was to Adam. And then... Adam and man did such a corrupted, self-centered, God-rejecting job of it that then we find that in chapter 9, God starts again with Noah. But does God forget the whole idea of going around the earth? He says, oh, you've done such a terrible job of this first time, we'll just forget it. No. In fact, we see an immediate parallel. God in chapter 9 says to Noah and his sons, I'm going to bless you. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's exactly the same. This is what God wants in Genesis. He says, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Not like multiply in it, but like, you know, multiply in the earth. And so Noah and Adam are both blessed by God and then sent to multiply in it. God sets things right. Even though Adam does a rubbish job, and as I was preparing this, I felt God just... Um, indicate to me just to pause for a second and say, you know what, if you feel this morning, irrelevant what this topic is, that you've done a rubbish job of what God has called you to do. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich and abounding in love. And so what we see with Noah is a good example of how God says, don't worry, mankind have a second chance. God is a God of second chances this morning. Anyway, a couple of chapters later, we've got Noah and his sons are given a really specific command. Go out and spread around the world, be fruitful and multiply. And we get to chapter 11, and what do we have? Man doing a great job of it? Not so much. We have the story of the Tower of Babel. What you have is a group of men come together, men and women, and say, I know what we'll do. We'll completely ignore God's command. And what we'll do is we will set up here in one location, instead of spreading out, a really big city and a really tall tower, they say will make it up into the heavens in direct disobedience to what God has called them to do. They decide that they want to settle and become powerful in a small place where what God has asked them to do is instead of settle to disperse, instead of having their own power to take his dominion over the earth. I've got five points for rival We're just going to skim through these about how the heart attitude of those men in building Babel was way out of line. So first of all, what we'll see when we read the verses, they say what we want to do is get ourselves a name. We want to get a great name for ourselves. They decide that instead of God's name being great, they're much more interested in their name being great. Them being called the builders of Babel. You know, their names will go down in history for building the biggest tower. Instead of being dependent on God, 
And God sending the people around the earth is going to require them to trust him and to be under their protection. They decide they want their own independence, they want their own security. They want to build their way without any reference to God. Also in chapter 11, we then see them hyping each other up. They say, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. They're kind of encouraging, spurring each other on to say, you know what? Let's ignore God. Let's do it our way. Um, I work in the city um, at a big firm, and you can observe within probably a few hours of being around my office or being around the clients that I go to, there is a great legacy building, city kind of great name-making-for-myself spirit in the city of London. People are all about leaving a great legacy, doing a great thing that means that their name will be remembered. They much prefer to have their own independence and their own security, maybe with finances. This isn't something unique to chapter 11 of Genesis. But just because other people spur you on like these guys do to build up yourself doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to end very well. And finally, kingship. These guys, actually, it's thought at the time at Genesis 11, um, there was probably one particular king, a guy called Nimrod, who what he really wanted to do was be king of every person on the earth. Now, that's not possible if you spread out, is it? But if you bring everyone to a city and have a great big tower that you sit at the top of, he wanted to put himself, if you like, in God's seat as the king of every person on earth. Promising them safety if they don't disperse, but really just jealous for power and control. So, what we find as we go through the story is that God is not willing to give up his seat of power, is he? I read one commentator say, God does not give up his seat. And I thought to myself, that's very, very good. That commentary was written maybe 100 years ago or so, but... Hopefully, as Londoners, we don't take on that attitude on the tube that we're not willing to give up our seat. Just because God doesn't give up his seat of power, it's still good. You know, if somebody's on the tube and you want to give up your seat to them, that's still appropriate. But God is not going to give up his seat of power. And so what we find in this chapter is it's God's prerogative. It is God who ultimately will maintain control and maintain authority over all people on the earth. And so... He doesn't allow Nimrod's plan to happen. Okay, we're a few minutes into the sermon, and you might be thinking, how on earth does it have anything to do with the nations? Well, what we read is that God, not being surprised by man's pride and man's arrogance and man's plans, has a creative solution. If you know the story well, you know that he says, actually, it's almost one of the biggest slaps in the face in the Bible. I'll tell you what I will do. I will come down from, uh, from heaven and come down and see if I can find this tower. It's a really, really sarcastic, ironic, like, oh, yeah, you've built to the heavens, have you? Well, I will come all this way down and check out, see if I can even find your tower. And God has this creative solution to stop there being like a super state on earth, to prevent there being a unified, overconfident humanity, which is a danger to itself and a danger in general, He has this beautiful solution, and it says in the Bible that he creates languages. You wonder how it happened, but it says he confused their languages. So suddenly now, these guys, these great Babel builders setting up a rival to God, (laughs) they can't even understand each other. And so suddenly they're trying to build the world's biggest town, the world's best city, and they're just trying to build, and they're like, nope, 
No, I got nothing. They don't know what's going on. And so God, instead of just coming down and wiping the whole thing out, which is probably what maybe I would have been tempted to do, he comes up with this creative solution, which is as a way of forcing disbursement around the world, which is what he always asked them to do in the first place, he creates nationalities and languages. Now, we now have 186 countries in the world and 6,500 spoken languages. If you are wondering, why did I ever have to learn French at school? Why did I ever have to struggle through an Italian or a Spanish class or a German class? The Bible says this is the origin of your language learning, is that God as a creative solution to man's arrogance and in a way to spread his dominion around the world creates languages and nationalities. Next week, we're going to hear about how Actually, there is another time in history that all of man will come together into one place. It's not now, but in years to come, there is going to be another time where mankind comes together. But on that day, instead of a man arrogantly trying to hold on to control of the whole earth, Jesus Christ will be seated and unified in authority. He's going to lead. He's going to sit as the king of the earth. But it's not appropriate for man to do that. We're going to move on in a minute now to look at Abraham and see how that links into nationalities and languages. But here's a question for us today. You know, sometimes I find like the Old Testament can speak and challenge us just as much as a direct challenge in an epistle in the New Testament. This set of kind of characteristics shown by the guys building Babel, we sometimes just need to ask ourselves, are we trying to build ourselves? Are we trying to build with reference to God, with what he's called us to do? Or in our lives, or specifically in our work, or in other elements of our lives, are we trying to set our own destiny with no reference to what God has called us to do? So has God created nations and languages just as a way of dividing men and preventing some kind of super state? Well, I think, actually, there's more to it than just limiting arrogant mankind. And I've got three points as to why I think that is. Firstly, I think... Well, God it wasn't, as I said, taken by surprise. Nations and languages weren't just an afterthought. That's not what Genesis 11 is saying. God wasn't taken by surprise of it. He's got this creative solution of multiplying nations and languages. Theologically, that also is a way, you think, probably to protect God's people. If you imagine there's one on the earth now, there's one super state, an authoritarian state. Well, actually, there would be an opportunity just in one stroke for somebody to wipe out all Christians. And God, almost as a protection for his own people, then spreads them around and prevents there being just one super authority on earth other than him. And thirdly, which I think is the main beautiful element of this creative plan that God has for nations and languages, is that had there just been a single nation and a single language the gospel and the redemptive plan of Jesus Christ still would have been beautiful. But what we get is that through the prism of thousands of languages and cultures, the good news of Jesus shines uniquely and beautifully in a number of ways, doesn't it? There is a, a diversity of dimensions of the relevance of Jesus' redemption that is more beautiful when it's through different cultures and into different settings, and into different languages, and expressed in different nations than if it had just been one. An American writer called John Piper says, it was the spectacular sin at Babel that gave rise to the multiplying of languages, 
But it's that that ends in the most glorious praise to Christ from every language on the earth. It's almost like God's name and his glory being sung in a lot of different languages is somehow more beautiful than if it was just in one. Does that make some sense? So it wasn't just God being reactive. He wasn't caught by surprise. This wasn't an afterthought. This is also a way to show Jesus' glory in a greater way. Okay, so we're going to move on from chapter 11. We've got every right, I guess, to wonder, is God going to continue after this particular scene? Is he going to continue to want people all over the world to be blessed? Because mankind so far has just let him down (laughs) again, and then again with Noah, and then again at Babel. Is God even going to want to continue to have his people around the world? And what we find is God doesn't just, as Phil said earlier on, he's not just interested generally. He's interested in individuals. And actually what we find is God picks someone out who's actually from this same area, from this area of Babel. He doesn't just pick a random guy. He says, out of this absolute mess that you've made, I'm going to pick somebody and I'm going to revive this whole concept of my glory and my way and my kingdom spreading through blessing around the world. I'm going to make this rubbish into a really beautiful individual story that's going to affect the nations. He's going to reignite, restore, and revive a passion and commitment to bless the world and draw in people from all around the world. And so we get to Abraham revival, the sending out of Abraham. I also think this looks a little bit like a Star Wars scene, so you know, that's part of the reason I picked that picture. Um, so we've been in Genesis chapter 11. So Genesis chapter 12 is just the next verse, and it starts off, we'll read it in a minute, talking about how God calls this guy called Abraham. Now, he's not Abraham yet. We'll get to that in a minute. But he calls this guy called Abraham, and he says, really, what I want to do is set man back on the right course. I want to revive the idea of man giving glory to God, living for him, communing with him. And so what he says to Abraham is, in direct contrast to Babel, where everyone was coming together, I'm going to call you to leave your people. I'm going to call you to leave your security, your independence. I'm going to call you to go and be dependent on me and spread out. He says, I am going to bless you. Now, we've heard before Adam being blessed and sent and Noah being blessed and sent, and none of that worked very well. But again, three times, God says now to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and I send you. He says, I'm going to take you places. He says, I'm going to make your name great. Contrast to Babel, where they're going to try and make their own name great. He says, as you go, I'm going to bless you and make your name great. And he says, I'm going to make you a blessing as you trust me and leave. He says that through you, Abraham, People everywhere are going to experience my favor. What a beautiful set of promises. We don't just get promises then in Genesis chapter 12, although that's quite a nice way of looking at it. Genesis 11, everything gets messed up. Genesis 12, there's this revival of this theme. But then actually, if you ever read through the story of Abraham, it's even better than Leicester City in terms of going from nothing to going to everything. It really is. It's the original origin of Leicester City's story. Abraham then has chapter after chapter after chapter of blessings spoken to him and promises given to him by God. It's amazing. I'm going to read a few of them out. He says repeatedly that he promises to bless him. He gives him a hope that God is going to show divine blessing to all families of the earth through him. He says you're going to have national and international plans, just like that. 
And then in chapter 18, we see that he says, I'm going to call you a different name, Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he says, I am going to make you the father of a multitude of nations. It's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. He says, I'm going to make you fruitful, which is a word linked right back to Genesis to do with having dominion over the earth on God's behalf. And God does this. He re-establishes in Abraham his creation mandate to go over the entire world under the blessing of God, under the protection of God, under the security and dependent on God, but in the right way, the opposite of what Babel was doing. So God clearly hasn't given up on having his people fill the earth. He hasn't given up on increasing greatly and being fruitful in the whole earth, but now he's causing it to happen through Abraham into these new nationalities, into these new languages. He's going to bless all of them. God then and today is altogether committed to that, to spreading his glory and having a people blessed and favored around the world without exception. Really quickly, on a personal level, it's interesting to contrast Abraham's willingness to leave his security and go to another nation and to obey God without even knowing where this other place was. So we're just going to put a few points on the screen which contrast with Babel. So we've got God is going to give him a name. We've got God is calling him to be dependent on God himself, not just to be independent. God is calling Abraham to trust in his direction, to trust in God's protection, to know that God is king rather than set up his own kingship. And God is giving Abraham a destiny to bless nations. It's a really nice contrast between chapter 11 and chapter 12, isn't it? And you know, God isn't these days forgetting to call people to nations. And so in this first week, this first sermon, let me just say this one thing to you. Could God call you to have this kind of heart of willingness to go and be sent? Now, I'm not saying could God call you to another country. God might call you to reach nations on your doorstep here in London. There are enough nations and people groups, if you remember, that's what we're talking about, and languages here in London. But could God call you to have this type of heart attitude of trusting him, trusting his protection, his plan to be sent out of just our own comfort zone, out to reach out, to be a blessing to others? Could God do that in you through this next few weeks? Maybe he could speak to you. Okay, I want to bring this to Jesus because what we find is God's method of this plan of blessing the world through Abraham happens. In Genesis 22, we read, Through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. It's not just Abraham that is going to be caused to be a blessing to many nations. It's through Abraham's offspring. In other translations, his seed. Genesis 26 says, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. Give them all these lands and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. Then Genesis 28, he says, Your descendants will be like the dust on the earth. You will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And all people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. If you've ever read the first chapter of Matthew, which I'm not allowed to talk about in the New Testament, but if you have ever read the beginning of the first chapter of Matthew, what you get is a lineage from Abraham, his offspring, down through to who? To Jesus Christ. And so we see the fulfillment of what happens in Genesis 
12, after the mess up of Genesis 11, isn't just that everybody is spread out, but that God's permeating kingdom of blessing and favor spreads out too. First through Abraham, then through his descendants, and then ultimately through Jesus Christ. And all of the rest of that is going to have to come in next week because I'm not allowed to preach on it this week. So, (laughs) Descended from Abraham is Jesus, God become man, who ushers in the ultimate redemption plan for the nations to know God. And this blessing isn't just like a pat on the head, like, oh, God bless. No. God, in speaking to Abraham about blessing, is talking about God giving of God himself. Them knowing God, being in relationship with him. Adoption into this family. Joining a people, if you like, a nation greater than any on earth. God's people. So just to sum these two stories up, there is so much in the heart of God and in the plan of God from Genesis 12 onwards for his salvation, his redemption, and his blessing to be a factor in every one of these new nations that has been set up. It's not an isolated theology in the Old Testament. It is the vocabulary of the Old Testament. We see in in Psalms, declare his glory among all the nations, not leaving any out, you know, all of the nations. His marvelous works to all the peoples. We find in Ezekiel 36 then, God says, all the nations will know that I am the Lord. All the nations. There is no exception. Just because there's been division and dispersion doesn't mean that there's any nation not included in God's plan of redemption. Okay, in a sec, we're going to read these passages to wind up, but I just want to say, so what? So this is a nice little theological exercise of looking through a couple of chapters. So what? How does that affect us? I guess, how does that apply to us today? Well, firstly, God gathers his people from all nations And he's still sending his church to the nations. God continues to send this church to go to the nations. Actually, Europe and America are not the center of gravity for Christianity around the world anymore. I don't know if you know that, but the center of gravity for Christianity is shifting south and east. Latin America, Africa, and Asia are experiencing phenomenal growth and are becoming the great sending churches. God is doing something around the world, whether we are aware of it in Ealing or a Redeemer or not, of continuing to send people to the nations. So, you know, so what? How does this affect me? Well, in this series, as I said earlier, could God speak to you about going to another nation or reaching another people group? I believe he will speak to us as a church, as a body, about being involved in it. But are you ready over the next five weeks just to be willing to be poked and prodded about God's heart for redemption around the nations? Or, as I said earlier, maybe a nation living, a people group living on your doorstep here in Ealing. There are a heck of a lot of nations represented here in Ealing. Could God speak to you over the next little while about not just focusing on those who are the same as you, but taking the good news of Jesus Christ to others? So it matters in chapter 11 and chapter 12 because God has set a precedent for blessing those who willingly go. But I want to say also, God has set a precedent in chapter 11 for opposing those who decide that what they're going to do is in no reference to God, set up their own life of comfort and of security. And so there is a personal challenge for us today. And as we break bread and as we have communion, as we sing, I'd love us willingly, not just being our arms twisted, to say to God, actually, I want to live in every area of my life building your kingdom, building for you, not building my own way, not just saying my security, my independence, my kingship, My lordship over my own life is what matters. But actually, out of submission, 
unlike the Babel builders, more like Abraham. I want your name to be great. If you want to give me a great name, I'll leave that up to you, but I'm not about my own name going down history. Did you notice that none of us know the names of the builders of Babel, do we? They thought they'd make themselves a great name. Nobody knows who they are. John Piper, just to sum up. So John Piper, in terms of blessing people who go to the nations, in the way that God blessed Abraham, he went and was a blessing. He says this, God will most likely bless us when we're planning to bless others. If God wants his goods to get to the nations, he will fill the truck that's driving towards the nations. God will bless the church that's pouring itself out to unreached peoples in the world. We should be leaping into the river of blessing that is already flowing to the nations. I believe, as a way of starting this series, that as a church, there are probably safe theological biblical grounds to say that the blessing of God will remain on us as a church for years to come if we remain committed to being a blessing to the unreached peoples of the world. I don't think that's a theological stretch. I think if we want to continue to know the blessing of God on us, we need to continue to commit to blessing the unreached peoples of the earth, to get involved in the stream of blessing that's already going out. We will always do well to remember that there are several thousands of people groups with no witness to Christ at all, and that we can play our part in that as a church. Before I hand over to Adam, we're going to read these passages. So, first of all, Genesis 11. Hopefully now you've seen some of Genesis 11, it'll make more sense. Okay. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, you know, geeing each other up, hyping each other up, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is only the beginning of what they're going to do and, and nothing they propose will now be impossible for them. Come, let us, a good Trinitarian reference, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. I think that means gradually rather than like teleportation, but you know, God could do anything. God dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city because they couldn't understand how to build in different languages. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So that's hopefully in agreement with what I was preaching about Genesis 11 and then Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, this is just after this last thing, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we read, so Abraham went. I want that to be true of us as a church. So we hearing the call of God over the next few weeks, went. We decided to go, as the Lord had told him. Is there another slide? And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. 
No longer shall your name be called Abraham, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. And then in chapter 22, he says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heavens and the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, including Jesus Christ, shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring, including Jesus Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you, what? Have done great things? No, because you've obeyed my voice. Why don't we pray? Father, we, we love how great your heart is for people around the world. We're humble when we think that the nations are just like drops of sand to you. Father, when we think of Babel, we, right now, we actively say back to you, we want our hearts not to be of building our own name, not to be of living in comfort and independence, building a destiny with no reference to your call in our lives. What we want for ourselves, for our families, for this church, is to be found to be of open heart, of obedient mind, of willingness to go and be a blessing to others. However much that requires trusting your call, however much that requires us trusting your protection and moving out of our own comfort zone, Father God, we pray, find in us an obedient heart. We'll just pause for a second. We've got some time. Just allow yourself in whatever way you want to, just to communicate back to God, I want to follow your call. I want to follow your voice. For some today, as we break bread and have communion, it would just be right for us to lay down our own name, to lay down the idea of building ourselves a destiny and a legacy, just to come again to God and say, This is all about you. The story of the Bible and of my life continues to be about the glory of God and not my own glory. Let's pray also. I just want to lead us in prayer for the next few weeks that God would call us to go. Father God, we think of Abraham, who later became Abraham. The way that you called him out of his own zone to go far and wide, under your blessing. And we pray, over the next few weeks, call us as individuals and as a church to take on the blessing you're offering and to go and bless others. We want to pray that over the next few weeks, there will be life-changing encounters for us that result in churches being planted far and wide. We don't want to believe for small things, God. We want to say, God, in our church, in our day, call us to change nations, to reach unreached people groups, to have a a lasting legacy as those who went for God's name, who were sent in God's blessing, who took the favor and the kingdom of God to unreached people groups here in London and around the world. God, do more than we could even ask or imagine in these next few weeks as you call us out from our comfortable 
are from our comfort zones. Help us to jump into the blessings that are going to the nations, we pray. And we all said amen.